everyone, and welcome to Truncated Thoughts presented by Pre-Scouter. We're discussing big ideas in life science. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ryan LaRanger. One thing you've perhaps heard Ryan say during past episodes is that typically the development and approval of a new drug requires about 10 years and a billion dollars. However, recently we've seen much faster timelines, both with vaccines and other drugs, to a point where it seemed worthy of discussion. Ryan, why don't we start with unpacking the concept of 10 years and a billion dollars? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's one of the most depressing and unchanging statistics. Uh, and uh, in some estimations, it's great because we're going to talk about how all these things have improved. Uh, by some estimations, it's closer to at least $2 billion, uh, depending on the field. So it's gotten more expensive, even though it's gotten better. Um, so when we're talking about 10 years and a billion dollars, the important thing is we're talking about a risk-adjusted calculation, right? Because we're talking about taking a molecule all the way through, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, the development of that compound. And the idea is that at each of these steps, you know, phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials, some number of molecules are going to fail. And so it's the question of, from a risk-adjusted perspective for a portfolio, getting one compound through successfully takes about 10 years and a billion dollars. At a high level, does that make sense? And then we can talk about some of the drivers of that cost. Yeah, absolutely. One other question I do have there is, can you speak to the number of molecules? Are we talking dozens? Are we talking hundreds? Oh my God. For like the beginning part of a pipeline? Yeah. yeah. You can be hundreds. It can be, um, the, the numbers vary a lot because it depends a little bit on the method that you take. So when you're talking about drug development, often you're talking about, I'm interested in a target, right? So the number of molecules that you're testing can be arbitrarily high. You know, there, there are libraries of molecules that people have isolated from deep sea and all these other amazing places. So it's uh, a bit of a shotgun approach sort of at the very early stages. Precisely. Okay, now, cool. some of that is changing, particularly with things like mRNA vaccines and so on and so forth. But that's sort of like traditionally how it's done. And so you might have tens of thousands or more molecules being tested. Maybe you get down to the statistically convenient number of 100, and then it starts, you know, uh, falling off, depending on a number of other factors. And then just in terms of, you know, the other thing to keep in mind here is at the early stage, right, when you're dealing with you know, thousands and thousands of molecules, if something doesn't work there, it doesn't cost anything, right? It's just, all right, we're not using this one anymore. The cost drivers start coming in particularly when you're doing the clinical trial portion and putting the drug um, in patients and testing. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. I just want to make sure if that broadly tracks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's where the bulk of the cost will, will come through, but please continue. So then at the very base level, uh, you can think about the d drug developer, right? Uh, they shoulder basically all of the costs for the clinical trial. So they have to recruit the patients. They have to work with the hospitals. They have to supply the compound, right? They have to coordinate everything, uh, collect adverse events, report adverse events, and all of this with uh, increasing number of patients. So phase one, you know, 10 to 100, it, it's, there's a huge variance and I'll explain why. Um, phase two, or like an order of magnitude more patients, basically. 
uh, phase three is that's when you're doing the safety study. And this is <laughs> this is the most uh, from a drug perspective. Phase three is the most deadly because now you have an enormous body of patients, all of whom you are treating, and failure is no longer just predicated by efficacy, but also by safety in the presence of adverse events. And you're not, at this stage in particular, you're not just fighting for FDA approval, you're fighting for results which are good enough that uh, you will be reimbursed. Because if the payers don't want to pay for your drug, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I guess when you think about all these different steps, the nuances between the different phases, why is this all moving faster? So there are a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is telehealth. And there, there are a whole range of services which are sort of telehealth adjacent, which also help, right? Because remember, it's clinical trials are predicated on clinical data, right? Clinical trial data, uh, where you need to be collecting efficacy, you need to be collecting, you know, safety results, adverse events from, you know, real life patients, from real life doctors, and doctor time's expensive and patient time is tricky. Patients can fall off, which is a nightmare. Uh, remote healthcare means it's easier to collect your raw data. So you're more likely to get it. But the other part of it, which is important, is there's a whole cottage machine learning industry around uh, site selection. Because remember, especially if you're treating a rare disease, not all hospitals have the same number of patients for that disease. If you recruit the wrong hospital, uh, you might only get a couple of patients out of it. So you need to work with five or 10 hospitals. And every time you increase the number of hospitals you have to work with, uh, that increases your costs. It can increase the amount of time that you need to be running this darn trial, which the meter's running, so it takes more money. Um, but being able to select using sort of uh, machine learning models, the right site can all by itself save you a lot of time. The other element of this that I'll bring up is, so operationally, that's one of the reasons why it's going faster. Another one is for certain rare diseases or in cases of extreme uh, experimental use needs, the FDA, uh, famously with the mRNA vaccines, um, has the ability to pull levers where they can say, all right, maybe we don't need three years of data. Maybe we only need two. And that's a thing which they can do. They monitor adverse events after deployment of the drug, but they say this needs to get out now. And as soon as the drug gets out, the company involved can you know, start making revenue because they're not having to give the drug or the, the compound gratis to a number of doctors. Uh, so that's another way that sort of the dynamics are changing in cases of uh, critical need, if that makes sense. Yeah, obviously, a lot of us followed you know, the way that some of the drug makers of the vaccine got that acceleration um, with the FDA you know, approval process. You know, are they cutting any corners? Like, let's just say you get this approval, this emergency approval what are the elements that you might actually do faster? And is there any compromise in the safety or the testing in that process? So by definition, any shortening of the time frame, any reduction in the number of patients that you're looking for is necessarily some form of compromise on safety and efficacy monitoring. Right. That's why it's emergency use as opposed to the thing we do all the time. Uh, 
Uh, the argument I generally make is that uh, often we are talking about relatively small changes of risk, particularly on a population level, right? Uh, the difference between monitoring for two years versus monitoring for three years means you might miss a couple of events. Your statistics might not be as completely overwhelming, but you know you have some very, very smart people who are determining sort of relative cost because you know even if you're shaving a year or two off of a phase three trial, the initial phases of study of the sort of safety and efficacy of a drug are there to catch the screaming disasters, right? If, if there's a major safety event that's going to occur, that's caught early, way before phase three. Like you don't, you don't make it to phase three it, unless you're treating sort of cancer or something very terminal. So, so there's a reasonable baseline of safety if you've made it to phase three. Yes, exactly. It's okay. more just a matter of at a population level, uh, phase three in a way is, it's sort of about two things. One is detecting edge cases, right? The kind of things that you miss when your N is smaller. Um, the other thing often with phase three is uh, cost effectiveness, not relative to a placebo, but the standard of care these days in the United States. And, and this is part of why phase three is often the graveyard of drugs, uh, because now it's not just a matter of, is it good? It's a question of, is it sufficiently better than what's currently being used, which can be an extremely high bar to clear. Yeah, definitely a high bar, but then also the mentality that people have as there's so much information out there about what these drug companies are doing, a lot in the media and a lot of different opinions traveling around. I wonder what you might say to somebody who is concerned about taking drugs or you know getting vaccines, you know, what, what do you say to them who don't necessarily trust that this was done the way it used to be done or the way it should be done because it's too fast and it's not safe? What I thoughts do you it, have there? So the thing that I would say is um, there's a lot of publicly available data in terms of clinical trial results, which give you like these 99.999% sort of safety ratings for things and that give you a sense of the adverse events. Uh, normally, uh, uh, it's we could have a whole conversation on VARES and how just it, there's a public database. It's, it's called VARES. Anyone can report anything that they think is a vaccine related side effect. Uh, and so some people will look at that and say, oh, you know, that's a database of everything that's gone wrong with the drug. Uh, it, it's not. It, it sort of is. But at the same time, like it's not. Uh, it's a little It's a bit conjecture, huh? And well, part of the problem is it's very vulnerable to things like zeitgeist, right? Um, it's uh, gosh, it, it's very similar to other cases where when people sort of think they see something, uh, they become more likely to report a thing they think they've seen. Um, that's a whole other topic. Uh, <laughs> a, Maybe, bit of, yeah. a bit of a can of worms. But yeah, basically, the way. thing that I would say is um, if something has made it to phase three trials, and it is approved for emergency use. Um, it is generally speaking considered to be safe for the overwhelming majority of patients. 
and this is actually one thing as I, if I, I feel like I'll, it, it would be terrible if I didn't circle back to this. One of the other things which is theoretically changing the cost for developing drugs is actually related to sort of what we're talking about with safety, where patient stratification, right? People are starting to develop drugs for very specific genotypes, right? You know, genomics, this is especially important for things like uh, tumors, cancer, uh, where you can say, you know, my drug or, you know, even bacteria, where my drug isn't targeting, you know, all cases of pneumonia. It's targeting pneumonia caused by this bacteria with this mutation. And that's my patient population. The important thing there from the perspective of uh, trial design is you have a much smaller starting population. So you need to treat far fewer patients in order to get a statistically significant number. Fewer patients, faster trial, less money. The scale and is different, right? The scale is completely different. Right. And uh, because you've done all this mechanistic work, theoretically, the cost for the, the chance of your failure goes down somewhat because you're not trying to, you know, fix everything. Right. A one size fix fits a all. Very specific thing, which also we don't have a lot of time to get into it today, but uh, prediction of protein folding has just gotten so, so, so good. Uh, I think it's fold go. It, it's incredible. Um, or alpha fold. That's what it is. Uh, seriously, alpha fold is incredible. We could do a whole podcast on it, uh, where basically it's they can take the sequence of a protein and use that to predict its shape, which allows you to much more easily design proteins which can match that shape and inhibit or promote a process. So there are elements of personalization that will continue to evolve and will continue to see those advancements to a point where the drug discovery, drug development process will be much more targeted. Is that a good place to leave it for today? That, that is a fine place to leave it. Okay. But the challenge and the reason why we started this with the cost to develop is still going up is because it's a little bit of a red queen thing where in order to make new drugs now, they need to be cost effective. And that can be a really high bar to clear, especially in areas where there are already a bunch of pretty good drugs. Right on. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you're not a subscriber already, find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to having you with us again soon.